NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. If you're always on the hunt for the right kind of snack, check out Bob's Red Mill Oat Bars. They're made with simple, wholesome ingredients like whole grain oats and peanut butter. Each bar contains six grams of protein, and they taste so good. With five delicious flavors to choose from, including chocolate and PB&J, everyone can find a favorite. Bob's Red Mill Oat Bars are the perfect snack for life on the go. Learn more at bobsredmill.com. Hey, Spotify, this is Megan Maroney. I feel like I've always loved country music. It's a lot of storytelling, and, you know, everybody loves a good story, so I think that's what makes it easy to listen to. To just see, like, a crowd of people connect with something that I wrote, it's really cool, and I'm just excited to do more of that this summer. Brought to you by Bud Light. Easy to drink, easy to enjoy. Tap the banner to learn more. Enjoy responsibly. 2023 Anheuser-Busch Bud Light Beer, St. Louis, Missouri. Two of the most elite people in Britain are smoking cigars and drinking fine whiskey well into the early morning. One was the son of a billionaire, the other a future Tory politician. It was the conservative peer-to-be, who at the time also happened to be a cricketer, and not any kind of cricketer, but the sort of player who was bigger than the game with that kind of gravitas. It was actually the idea of the billionaire's son who turned and said, well, why don't we have a world tournament? The response from the player is that it will be expensive. And so their rich friend just says that they will pay for it. And two years later, cricket has its first ever World Cup. Of course, the opening match was rained out and practically no one turned up. But the most important match was when England beat Australia in the last round-robin match at Edgebaston. These teams were always planned to play at the end because they thought they would be the two strongest contenders and this would actually be a final because there was no final. And the anticipation proved accurate. The excitement around the competition escalated as it also became evident that this pivotal match would mark the crowning of the inaugural World Cup holder. One England legend made 100 and because of that, the team won the tournament. And of course, if you know your cricket history, You'll have worked out by now that I am not talking about a men's event, but the 1973 Women's World Cup. The player to make the 100 was Enid Bakewell, and the tournament was started by Jack Haywood and Rachel Hayhoe Flint. And by the tournament, I mean the entire concept of a Cricket World Cup essentially goes down to two people smoking cigars and drinking whiskey and trying to work out how to make people watch the women's game. Welcome to the new season of Double Century, the podcast about the history of cricket. This time we are celebrating the World Cup, cricket's first foray into modern sport thinking. We'll have an episode on every male tournament so far, but for this episode, we wanted to go back to when it started, when the Cricket World Cup was invented by the women. And, well, one man. What is chronic migraine? It's 15 or more headache days a month, each lasting four hours or more, 
Botox, onabotulinum toxin A, prevents headaches in adults with chronic migraine. It's not approved for adults with migraine who have 14 or fewer headache days a month. Ask your doctor about Botox. Botox is a prescription medicine injected by your doctor. Effects of Botox may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness can be signs of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Side effects may include allergic reactions, neck and injection site pain, fatigue, and headache. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Don't receive Botox if there's a skin infection. Tell your doctor your medical history, muscle or nerve conditions, including ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome, and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. Talk to your doctor and visit BotoxChronicMigraine.com or call 1-800-44-BOTOX to learn more. This episode is brought to you by AT&T Fiber, and in honor of their straightforward pricing, we're going to have a straightforward moment, just you and me. Be honest, when you're listening to ads like this one right here, you don't just sit there, ears glued and waiting to make a note of interesting offers, do you? Of course not. You're checking out your fantasy stats or catching up on the scores or doing any number of other things you want to do. I get it. I'm not fully paying attention to this ad either. I've got the game playing in a little window on my laptop as I read this. It's called multitasking. And now that we're being straightforward with each other, here's something else that can be totally straightforward. Your internet. No, seriously. Because when you become a gagillionaire with AT&T Fiber, you don't just get super fast internet speeds. You get a bill that's straightforward all the way. Equipment fees, price increase at 12 months, not a thing here. Everything is straightforward the way it should be. And that's it. You can go ahead and check on your fantasy team now. Straightforward is better. No equipment fees, no data caps, no price increase at 12 months. Live like a gagillionaire with AT&T Fiber. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Jack Haywood used to say that he loved women and cricket. So for him, backing women's cricket made a lot of sense. He'd already made a notable impression on women's cricketers both in England and the Caribbean, having sponsored unofficial visits to Jamaica in 1970 and also orchestrated the first official tour by the WCA to the West Indies, Bahamas and Bermuda in 1971. Additionally, he was instrumental in setting up the triangular tournament involving England, Trinidad and Jamaica. But after a game in 1971, he had a much grander plan. His notion was simple yet groundbreaking. Why not have a massive global event? And the only reason that Jack Haywood was involved at all is because that Rachel Hayhoe Flint had dragged him into women's cricket. And it really was their friendship that built the Women's World Cup. The prospect of organising such an event was absolutely daunting, primarily due to the financial considerations. Women's cricket, it wouldn't even be fair to call it amateur. It was sub-amateur. And yes, Hayward's unwavering commitment to the cause led him to give £40,000 to cover expenses. But remember, there still wasn't actually a proper organisation that ran women's cricket. There was an amateur organisation that was involved. The ICC did not run women's cricket at the time and also wouldn't for the next 30 years. And even though this was the first proper World Cup, although the term World Cup had been used in cricket before, but not really for World Cups, the Australians had already proposed an international tournament earlier to the International Women's Cricket Council. However, they just didn't have the finances or the organisational structure to be able to do this. So Hayward just dropping that much money in was absolutely crazy, but it was also just the reason why this could happen at all. The format of the World Cup was based more on the English domestic list day men's cricket. The matches were set to be 60 overs aside, adopting a one-day international structure. And just remember how weird all this was in what was a test world at that time. 
The WCA in England took on responsibilities such as publicity, printing, and ground-related costs. To generate funds, special World Cup memorabilia programs and a raffle were organised. Hayward's money went a long way, but they also knew they weren't going to be making much back from having this tournament. And it wasn't just about playing either. They really wanted to grow the game with this tournament. Women's cricket had struggled in the 1960s. To be fair, so did the men's at times. And so this was a chance to really publicize their game. They also picked a bunch of diverse locations, ranging from public parks through to county outgrounds and club venues. But part of that was also because no major venues wanted to host the Women's World Cup. And on a boiling hot 14th of June 1973, Jack Haywood's exquisite solid silver trophy took centre stage. Against this backdrop, the first Cricket World Cup competition was formally inaugurated by the chairman of the English Sports Council. There was genuine excitement and hope in the air that day. Sadly enough, when the tournament finally came around, that kind of dissipated a little bit. The first game was between Jamaica and New Zealand. I mean, who starts a tournament without the hosts and two of the smallest nations on earth? Unfortunately, it was even worse because it absolutely poured down that day. Cricket could not have chosen a worse start for a World Cup, especially being that it was the maiden event. It wasn't a particularly big tournament in terms of the teams either. Jamaica and New Zealand were obviously two of them. There was England, Australia, Trinidad and Tobago, an international 11 and a young England 11. And Australia bowled out that young England 11 for 57 runs in the first completed match of this tournament. The international 11 was weird too, as it was originally set up as a way of getting around the system to fit in apartheid players to the World Cup. That was until the Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago players complained, and so it ended up just being made up of players not quite good enough for their national teams. It's also just worth pointing out that this was not the best women cricketers in the world at that point, because the only way you could play women's cricket at that stage was if you were already quite rich. At best, you would have a job that would allow you flexibility to have time off work. So it was actually more of an elitist game than men's cricket was at that time. But even if those are the sorts of people who are involved, think about what was happening. This tournament allowed for women around the world to share cricket knowledge in a way they just never had before. And they were growing the game and actually getting some publicity, which they could not get for their bilaterals. Of course, men's cricket and also men's cricket media largely ignored the event, including Wisden, who threw it to the back of their edition and barely treated it as something worth talking about. And I do wonder now what would have been different if Wisdom would have crowned Enid Bakewell as one of their five women cricketers of the year for that World Cup for her incredible 118, or just had the English press covered it properly? Or what if the ICC looked over and went, wait, there's something happening here. We should bring women's cricket in. None of that happened. And while the tournament was a success in many different ways, the financial outcome of the World Cup fell well short of expectations, partly because they had so much rain but they only collected £747 from gate receipts. And the WCA didn't make any money from the event. And they were so broke that they couldn't host cricket for another three years. Things would actually get worse, especially for English women's cricket. And remember, they were the ones hosting this. Eventually, the Sports Council of England would say that the women's cricket was a dying sport in this country. But for all that, the inception of the Women's Cricket World Cup set something transformative happening within our sport and specifically within the women's game as well. I mean, in 1978, India hosted the second edition of the tournament. Remember, it wasn't until 1987 that a men's World Cup was held outside of England. 
So the women's game was actually growing in a better way than the men's game, even if it was doing it from a far smaller tournament. But women's cricket still moved very slowly. Remember, they did actually inspire the men. So by 1975, there was a men's World Cup, and they would eventually be worth billions and billions of dollars. In fact, the ICC exists as a construct in our mind largely because of these World Cups. It was around well beforehand, of course, but it wasn't a very important thing. The thing that really made the ICC rich and or powerful maybe is the wrong word, but at least an organizational part of cricket was the World Cups. And eventually the ICC would bring women into the game. So while a lot of misogynist men will think that the women are actually parasitical and that they live off the men's game, you do wonder what would have happened if there wasn't a Women's World Cup in 1973. How long would it have taken before we actually had a Men's World Cup? Would it have been even anything like we see now? Especially as not long after 1975, we had the Kerry Packer situation. The truth is that having a Women's World Cup was actually a precursor to having the men's, and they actually go hand in hand. And it's a real shame that women's cricket didn't get the same boost that the men's game actually did when it started having its global events. But, I mean, that this event existed at all was completely amazing. The entire endeavor was just a monumental risk. And now, a World Cup in cricket is such a major part of how we enjoy our game. But that it started by two people just trying to grow the women's game is such a weird quirk. Haywood and Hayho Flint started a multi-billion dollar business that changed cricket with £40,000 and not much more than a dream. In 2020, 86,174 fans turned up to watch the World Cup final between India and Australia. Sadly, only a few years earlier, Hayho Flint and Haywood had passed away and so they didn't get to see what was happening to women's cricket. But when you watch India host this 2023 event, remember that those two invented the entire thing with whiskey and cigar smoke. Rachel Hayhoe Flint and Jack Haywood are the parents of the Cricket World Cup. Thanks for listening to Double Century. This podcast was made entirely possible by our supporters at Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Double Century is a podcast narrated, produced, and co-written by me, Jared Kimber. Abhishek Mukherjee is the main writer, and Nick McCorriston edits, mixes, and co-produces the show. Sports Social Podcast Network.